Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us on the conversation on this Aloha Friday. Today, we invite you to join the conversation about in vitro fertilization, IVF. We look at the history in the current snapshot in Hawaii, given the recent ruling in Alabama that sparked conversations around women's reproductive rights. What, if any, will that state's ruling around whether an embryo is a child will affect IVF here in the islands? We hear from the first and oldest IVF clinic in Hawaii and discuss the legal issues on the landscape. Join our roundtable talk, call 941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689. It's March 1st, and a reminder, we do have the monthly emergency broadcast test today. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning we focus our attention on IVF, uh, in vitro fertilization. Around our roundtable today, Dr. Celia Dominguez. She's co-director of the Pacific In Vitro Fertilization Institute, which operates out of Kapilani Medical Center for Women and Children. She's board certified in obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive endocrinology, infertility, and has worked in a number of states across the country. Dr. Dominguez, thank you for setting time aside to be with us today. Thank you for asking me to come over and (laughs) converse. Yes. (laughs) Also in studio is Assistant Law Professor Miyoko Pettit-Toledo. She's here to talk about uh, women's reproductive rights uh, and give us some context uh, with the recent uh, decisions uh, that have come down in Alabama. Uh, She is with the University of Hawaii William S. Richardson School of Law in Manoa. Welcome to you, too. Thank you so much, (laughs) Catherine, for having me to discuss these important issues. And I'm so glad that your schedule lightened up for for you to join us today. So why are we talking about this? Well, you know, uh, on the floor of the Senate in our nation's capital yesterday, uh, Hawaii U.S. Senator Brian Schatz gave an impassioned speech about IVF. He said, like so many of us today, you know, he knows uh, someone struggling with fertility issues and who has gone down that path of IVF to help conceive. He spoke as lawmakers this week took up a bill to try and protect IVF across the country. It was blocked by Senate Republicans. Take a listen. It is not a crime to start a family. But now, it is. It is not a crime to dispose of a non-viable embryo in a lab. But Republicans have made sure that it is a crime. Do you know how hard it is to do IVF? Everybody who's at least my age knows somebody who had a struggle getting pregnant. And that thing is emotionally and physically and financially exhausting. And I've never thought of IVF through a partisan lens. I honestly hadn't. It didn't occur to me, it didn't occur to me that they were going to go after people actually trying to get pregnant. This is not about babies and life and families. This is about punishing women. This is about taking away their autonomy. This is their objective. Yeah, very uh, passionate uh, speech by Senator Brian Schatz. And Dr. Dominguez, uh, you were watching some of the coverage. Uh, you know, this bill was proposed uh, by uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth, um, who has Hawaii ties. And you were moved by her speech, too. Yeah, she was talking about her own personal journey in in vitro fertilization and what she needed to be able to build a family. We're here to help build families. That's what our, our purpose is. And um, she was uh, talking about how 
without in vitro, she would not have been able to have more than just her and her husband. And it was kind of really, um, it, she was obviously very, very passionate about it. And it was very, very moving. And how important it is for us to be able to maintain in vitro as um, the options for for many women and Additionally, you know, I can add to this, many uh, people that don't have either partners that are of the opposite sex or don't have another partner at all. So um, it, it was it was really beautiful to, to hear her story defending in vitro fertilization and defending her, her rights. Yeah, and Miyoko, you know, what did you think when, when you heard these speeches? You know, the speeches were, were very moving. Um, for all the reasons, I mean, I sitting across from Dr. Dominguez, we're both getting emotional just listening to Senator Schott speak again here. Um, but it's a it's a strong reaction because what this Alabama IVF Supreme Court ruling has done, in conjunction with what we've seen from the Supreme Court overruling Roe v. v. Wave in the Dobbs case and the conservative move, movement more broadly is this realization that they're coming for more than abortion. And these rulings have really destabilized the legal landscape of reproductive autonomy and freedom. And so this bill that Senator Tammy Duckworth was introducing into the federal Congress was really to try to protect access to in vitro fertilization and to promote and protect um, pregnant peoples or people's um, reproductive autonomy and freedom. Well, you know, I, I just, uh, with, with all the headlines about Alabama, just started to think about, you know, the history uh, of uh, IVF here in Hawaii. Uh, the very first test tube baby was born in England in uh, 1978. Her name, Louise Brown. In the U.S., the first IVF baby was Elizabeth Carr. She was born in 1981. And Hawaii's first in vitro baby was born December 1985. Jacqueline Lowe was born with help from the Pacific In Vitro Fertilization Institute. Here's a KITV news clip from 2010. On December 20th, 1985, Jacqueline Lowe, Hawaii's first test tube baby, was born. Back then, parents Janice and James Lowe found out about the new in vitro fertilization process of uniting the sperm and egg in a petri dish from a newspaper article. The birth made international news and a team of Hawaii doctors made that happy announcement. The delivery occurred today, uh, December 20th, 1985 at 9.43 a.m eight months and 18 days after the startup of our in vitro program. So all of our family friends, they all saw me as such a blessing. Jackie is now 25 years old and is a graduate of Iolani School in the University of Oregon. Next month, she'll move to China for an MBA program with UH Manoa's Business School. As she prepares to leave, her parents reflect on her first days of life. I was so frightened. <laughs> so, so fragile, you know, it, it's, you wanted something so badly and it she's here what do i do now how am i going to mess her up yeah. <laughs> you know you just think of just the the desire of so many families uh you know to have a child and and then when you see this happen and then your institute helped to make it become a reality for the lows i mean what, what's that like for you as you listen to this I mean, it's truly so exciting. I mean, this has been going on in pretty much my full career. I've been doing this for 35 years. 
and uh, trained in, 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 in New York City. And to know that Hawaii was one of the first 10 infertility centers in all of the United States, it's kind of mind-boggling. And what we were able to achieve back when it was really, you know, this, this is just, it's just amazing having lived through much of the beginning of in vitro and where we are now and what we're capable of doing and that we have embryos and that we can freeze embryos and that we can freeze eggs. So um, it, it's just, it's, it's an exciting time for, for all of us that uh, are here to just try to build families. Yeah, and then your institute has helped uh, thousands, like I think 7,000 or more, right? 7,000 or more, yes. And then you're not the only clinic uh, in Hawaii now. There are others. Yes, there's there's a few others. Uh, the military has an, um, their own clinic out of Tripler, and then we have a clinic out of Queens um, with uh, Dr. Benton Chun, and then there's uh, the Fertility Institute with Dr. John Fratarelli and two other physicians there with him. And then Dr. Um, Chris Wong and Kristen Arnett, that's also at Capulani with us. And then um, the director of Pacific In Vitro, Dr. Tom Casasa, who's really one of the pioneers, pioneers to all absolutely. of this. I mean, it just uh, eminence in the field. It, it is uh, amazing though. I'm just struck by the technology and the changes, right? Because it's not just male-female, it's male-male, a female as well, uh, you know, uh, talk about what you're seeing, you know, out there on the legal landscape. Sure. So one of the things with this Alabama IVF ruling um, that's so striking and honestly terrifying and horrifying as is that this ruling is perhaps one of the most explicit judicial pronouncements in a meaningful way that is embracing this concept of fetal personhood or this legal theory that fetuses who are not yet born and not yet implanted in the uterus have rights like any other person. And so the, the, with regard to the legal landscape, that sort of very clear and explicit judicial ruling from the highest um, Supreme Court in Alabama um, really creates chaos and confusion and starts to jeopardize things that we believed used to be safe, that in many ways are still safe scientifically, the work that Dr. Dominguez and other of her colleagues are doing, um, and is jeopardizing things that we have been taking for granted. And so the precise implications of these types of rulings and these types of movements, and not just what's happening um, in state Supreme Courts, but also with different types of state legislative initiatives, and perhaps there's some other movement happening at the federal level too, um, with this type of bill being introduced that was blocked. Um, the precise implications are unclear at this point. Um, for example, the Alabama IVF decision does not explicitly prohibit IVF in Alabama. That's not what the ruling is as a formal matter. Um, but it really does not provide guidance on what is permitted going for forward. And in addition, it came down at a time with no notice where we are getting stories coming out of Alabama where pregnant people or pe and people who, sorry, not pregnant people, but people who wanted to become pregnant or sitting in clinics about to have these embryos implanted by a doctor like Dr. Dominguez 
and they were stopped. Right. Everything was halted, paused. Yeah. Immediately impacted. Our guest in our studio today, Dr. Celia Dominguez. She's co-director of the Pacific In Vitro Fertilization Institute, the first IVF clinic in Hawaii. And Miyoko Pettit, uh, Toledo is an assistant law professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And Dr. Dominguez, when we were chatting last week, you had mentioned that you have some colleagues in Alabama, and I believe you reached out to them. What, what's the situation there? How are they dealing with this decision? Well, there's, I think, about eight centers um, in Alabama. The largest centers have obviously halted everything. And literally, just like Miyoko had said, there were women that were ready to be transferred. And everything stopped um, on February 16th after the ruling. So it's been about two weeks. So um, there's been a lot of discussion with respect to what the patients right now are going to be able to do, whether they're going to go across state lines, what's going to happen with the embryos, are the embryos being accepted by other other centers. There's concern of uh, centers accepting embryos from Alabama and what their liability would be if they then dispose of these embryos that were created in Alabama. So there's, uh, we, we have, for example, what we call banks. So in Hawaii, um, at least in our clinic, we don't always hold on to all the embryos. We can send them to a bank or actually send even our eggs that are frozen to banks that are in, a, in safe holding, for example. Um, and so there's even been questions about that. So right now, the three very largest centers in Alabama, I, I think it's only three, but as of uh, what, I, what I talked to my colleagues uh, yesterday, the day before yesterday, they said it was three are, are fully closed awaiting. Uh, there is, though, a lot of discussion of, of, of a new regulation that they're hoping to pass in the next uh, few days, if not uh, a week, with respect to protecting uh, the liability of the clinics so that the clinics themselves won't be liable. So um, that's what they're waiting. So there's just a lot of waiting game. What happens to abnormal embryos? What happens? So there's just a lot of questions and just uh, waiting and, and is there concern here about the embryos that we have banked? I mean, I don't know if, if you have a, a number of embryos or you just you have a certain amount when you deal with certain families that you're pretty much going to use those. Well, there's about a, a million and a half embryos that are banked out throughout the uh, United States. So <laughs> there's huge implications on what's going to happen to our embryos. Or particularly right now, many embryos are tested because um, couples have some type of disease that they don't want to then transmit that are lethal diseases or that they've had tested embryos that already have uh, genetics that are incompatible with life. So those are the concerns that are really being brought up mainly not only in Alabama but that I have had my patients bring up here to, to us. Yeah, and, and you're shaking your head here. <laughs> what, what can you add to this? Yeah, so um, as a law professor, I neglected to really articulate what the Alabama IVF ruling essentially held. Um, but the ruling was under Alabama's state statute, a wrongful death of a minor law. And the Alabama Supreme Court um, agreed that a frozen, non-implanted embryo counts as an extrauterine child for purposes of that law. So to the extent that that embryo extrauterine, so outside of, of the womb or the fetus, is destroyed or, or killed, was the language that the court used, um, then that would constitute, um, per perhaps if it's proven and taken to trial, a wrongful death under that minor law. And so 
with this holding, um, as Dr. Nowingus has pointed out, it's raised serious questions about the availability of IVF treatment and the future of IVF treatment in Alabama, but also perhaps beyond Alabama too. Um, it's raised questions not just as to civil liability, but as to the how, whether, and when you can complete IVF treatment. So the how, some of what Dr. Dominguez was pointing out, can you do genetic testing on embryos? Can you um, track abnormalities, you know, uh, embryos that will not take if they are implanted, and even the ones that are implanted, if there are some risk, and, and Dr. Domingo can talk to the um, kind of specifics of this, but sometimes there are processes of selective reduction of where it's, it's not going to be a viable pregnancy with that embryo. But all of those questions as to how do you go about doing IVF have been thrown into question. The weather these clinics and doctors in Alabama and potentially beyond has also been thrown into question. Um, not only is there potential risk of civil liability, such as under this Alabama wrongful death of a minor statute, where the couples who brought the lawsuit were seeking punitive damages, um, which could potentially put some smaller clinics under, for example, if they are found liable, but it has also implicated um, these sort of adenine child abuse and child endangerment statutes, so potential criminal liability, and that's what the first clip with Dr. Um, sorry, Senator Schatz was pointing out, is that, well, can these child abuse or child endangerment criminal statutes be used against those cryogenically preserved or frozen embryos, right? We can't, you're not supposed to put a child in the freezer, freezer right? right? Um, but in order to actually preserve embryos, that is exactly the process that is required and necessary to make sure that they, they you know, um, can be preserved. And then the question as to when now can we proceed with IVF treatment if an extrauterine um, fetus now or embryo is considered an extrauterine child under these wrongful death statutes, the question is, well, do unimplanted embryos, because sometimes there are multiple embryos created, um, do they need to be implanted at some point in the future? Is that now going to be required if they are deemed to be a child for purposes of these statutes? So it can get really complicated. I mean, you know, there's an immediate effect in Alabama. Everybody else is watching this very closely and trying to figure out, you know, what do our rules say, you know, and, and are these rights protected or not? Yeah, and one of the concerns, I t just to add, in Alabama right now and why some of the clinics have actually closed is the fear that when we unfreeze embryos, sometimes they don't make it. So if I'm unfreezing two embryos and one embryo doesn't make it because it, it unfreezes poorly, because it looks like it's actually halted its own development, what's the liability of the physician that now has unfrozen that embryo ready to go into a female where the embryo didn't make it during the technical procedure of unfreezing. And that's really why some of the very large clinics have halted. They're halting not because they're going to be unfreezing embryos to get, you know, to have them um, be disposed of right this minute. Right. Um, but because of during the transfer process, I, I did a transfer today, for example, um, most of these embryos are frozen because 
how we do in vitro now, many times our best success rates are when we put the embryos in at a different cycle than we remove the eggs and create the embryos. Also, if we're doing embryo testing, if we're looking to see what the genetics of the embryo is, we have to wait for the results. So we have to freeze the embryo before we get the results, so then we later have to put in the embryos. So the, the, the present concern um, and why the halting has occurred over these last two weeks in, in the large clinics is, again, in the fear that I remove some embryos from the freezer and one doesn't make it. Yeah, so that's the, and, and what does that mean towards the physician and the patients? Right. So it's not just the physician that's potentially going to be liable, but it's the patient that's going to be liable also. Yeah, the implications. Well, we do have a caller on the line, uh, Steve from Kapahulu. What's on your mind? Well, <coughs> I, um, I find the, the part of the conversation that is usually missing. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. The part of the conversation that is usually missing uh, is the elephant in the room, which was brought up painfully, clearly, by this Alabama judge, and that's religious fundamentalism. And as long as women are constantly facing this kind of handmaid's tale um, mentality and anti-science that um, all the other, all the other questions are, uh, I mean, relevant in the short term, but in the long term, uh, possibly starting in 2024, we must, especially women, must begin to think in terms of, of voting out the uh, extremely regressive people who are, who are in the thrall of this, um, uh, well, I guess it was the Pentecostal movement from the early, about 100 years ago. Is that is that appropriate to discuss that in this forum? Well, who wants to take that? <laughs> so I am no uh, freedom of religion uh, scholar, but I w- what the caller is referring to is um, the concurrence or written by the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. And a concurrence is basically agreeing with the outcome of the decision of the majority opinion, but adding some additional reasons as to why he agreed. And he, in, in many ways, used more religious and moral arguments than legal reasoning to support that concurring decision and very um, vivid language. And one of the things that that implicates is the establishment cause, the separation of church and state. And there have been various recent cases um up at the U.S. Supreme Court relating to the Establishment Clause. So this case does raise some of those questions, particularly through the Chief Justice's concurrence. But what it also calls into question um, is one of the things that potentially could come about after this um, opinion is that the majority opinion and the concurrence seem to suggest that the Alabama state constitution prevents IVF. That's not what they came out and said here because this opinion was sort of limited to an interpretation of the wrongful death of a minor law. But if Alabama state legislators, for example, try to amend or pass legislation that carves out an exception saying, um, you know, unimplanted embryos are not going to be covered under this wrongful death law, potentially those could be challenged and could end up again at the Alabama Supreme Court 
And there's indications in this opinion that we just got that the Alabama Supreme Court might just strike down such legislation because it would be inconsistent with their interpretation of the Alabama state constitution. And then, Dr. Dominguez, I know we were, we were chatting last week. We were talking about some previous rulings uh, and some clarifications that the Catholic uh, Church also helped to, I guess, clear the way or define the way, define the path. Right. So I, I think what I had mentioned was that one of the reasons why there was a scientific improvement or, or a kind of fast forward with respect to the capacity for us to be able to freeze eggs as best as we can, because we were not able to do that before. Some of that was really heralded by um, Italy and, and the Vatican, and their comments, decisions, recommendations, uh, strong wording that there should not be uh, more embryos created that we're not going to be using. And in that situation, what happened was, well, can we then improve egg freezing? So if we're going to have uh, 20 eggs and uh, we're going to only make five embryos because that might be what we're going to be able to use in a given patient, should we then be able to freeze their eggs really well? And so improvement in the capacity to freeze eggs and what we call cryopreservation through now what we call vitrification really came about from the need to change practice because of recommendations or laws in Italy. So kind of there was a, a silver, silver lining to the very um, strong laws and regulations in Italy for us to be able to then morph what we do uh, to be able to still give um, options to patients. And, and, you know, that's where some of this is, you know, being questioned now. I mean, what are going to be the options that we can then be able to give to patients um, as these rulings come down? And, you know, we did hear from uh, a number of our listeners, you know, about this issue. Uh, uh, we got uh, this one overnight. Hello, my name is Bobby. I live in Makawao. And my comment regarding in vitro fertilization and all of this controversy regarding whether or not a blastomere, which is a 7 to 10 cell, small, little transplantable organism, is a human being, is just quite outrageous. I think that we have really gone too far in America with people's extreme opinions making decisions for the rest of us. So my own feeling is that you're a human when you're born. So that's my opinion. Thank you. Aloha. And we got this email from Barry uh, in Kona. Alabama Supreme Court states that they do not want unwanted children to be born, but they don't want unwanted children to be born. Hmm. If frozen eggs are counted as people, does that mean that all frozen fertilized eggs in Alabama will be counted in the Alabama census? Why not? More representation in Congress. But whoops, by that logic, each of these frozen eggs must be entitled to Alabama Medicaid benefits for disabled persons because those eggs cannot live independently. They require constant external life support until they are born. Ah, uh, well, there's always a price for brilliant ideas. And uh, we heard this uh, from out on the street, starting with Sue from Honolulu. I think the Republicans should just leave it alone. And from what I do know about it, I believe it's a good thing because it's something that's 
a lot of families really want. They want to have a baby that way. So um, stop harassing women. I don't think it's life yet. I believe it's just an embryo. I mean, I know that it's going to make a life, but it doesn't always work. So how do you know that it's really a life yet? If it hasn't been inserted and that connection is made, it's not a life yet. So if that's what you want, I think it's amazing. I think everybody should have the opportunity to have a kid. So I don't want, I don't, I'm not that person who thinks all women should have kids. You do what you want, but if that's your only option because life throws you a curve, then absolutely. And that was Nicole from Pololo. And, uh, you know, Miyoko, I don't know, what can you just say about the politics here in Hawaii and, uh, you know, where this might go? Sure. I'm, I'm optimistic um, here in Hawaii. Um, there was a strong push after the Dobbs decision came down to pass SB1, which was passed successfully um, last year and is now law that's protecting people's rights to um, basically have autonomy over their um, reproductive process and to have an abortion, especially if, it, if it's needed to um, protect their safety and their health. Um, we have a, a I'm just going to say it, a pretty liberal progressive Hawaii Supreme Court. Um, and I, I feel pretty confident that if should these issues come up, they would deal with them in a way where they're looking at the law. They're looking to our Hawaii state constitution, which thankfully does not have a lot of the similar language as the Alabama state constitution. Um, we've seen the courageous justices, um, just one example earlier this month, Justice Eddins in the State v. Wilson case pushed back at recent U.S. Supreme Court rulings in the context of gun rights. They've not they've been on the frontier and pioneers on climate justice rulings, um, holding big oil companies um, not yet accountable. But there's a, a pending case where they allowed it to proceed to, to the discovery phase of litigation. And so with regard to the politics here, um, I'm a little bit hopeful, but I will note that we are not entirely immune from attempts to restrict reproductive autonomy and freedom. Just earlier this week, there was a lawsuit filed um, by the Center for Reproductive Rights and the Native Hawaiian Legal Corporation in the First Circuit Court of Hawaii on behalf of Native Hawaiian midwives and others against the state of Hawaii in an attempt to block a new midwifery restriction law that prevents them from serving pregnant people in Hawaii for their pregnancies and births as they have done for generations. And this new midwifery restriction law, it's a state law. Um, and these plaintiffs who brought this lawsuit are arguing that it's endangering constitutionally protective Native Hawaiian traditional birthing practices. And so in Hawaii, when we're talking about reproductive autonomy and freedom, um, we're also looking at where it intersects with indigenous rights and particularly um, the health of Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders for which the maternal health rates are um, um, the highest in the country. Yeah, so I mean, this just could affect so many, uh, uh, you know, different aspects of, of uh, uh, a woman's right uh, to decide what to do with her body. I mean, I don't know, you know, you, you, we talk uh, and we hear a lot about, you know, pro-life and, and, and rights for women, 
um, it, it, it's complicated. And I don't know what, you're, what you see in your practice, Dr. Dominguez, you know, people struggle with some of these issues. It's very complicated because as we um, help women to get pregnant, we also not always test every embryo because sometimes we, 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 we can't test every embryo. The embryos sometimes are only eight cell embryos versus blastocyst embryos. And when we put them inside, we do check um, something called um, non-invasive prenatal testing that we can do in women at 10 weeks. So there are tests that we do to look to see if they have chromosome 21, an extra chromosome 21 in the fetus, or 18 or 16 or 13. And so sometimes, unfortunately, we tell these women that have struggled so hard and had to, have had to do in vitro to get pregnant that their fetus has a lethal um, chromosomal um, testing. So when they have chromosomes 13, trisomies 18, so now we've gone from so excited to get pregnant and to have life and to hear heartbeats to having to potentially having to make decisions to do selective reduction or reducing a pregnancy. So the struggles that occur on our side and, you know, with the information that we can give patients sometimes and uh, the decision-making can be very, very heartbreaking, yeah. very difficult. Yeah. You know, we also spoke with Oahu attorney Carol Lockwood. Uh, she assists people undergoing various types of assisted reproductive technology procedures. Uh, she told us that her local clients felt somewhat insulated from the Alabama news. I would like to say that my reaction was surprise, <laughs> but unfortunately, of course, it was not. It was very serious concern uh, because I get to see the human side of this process a great deal. And I've really come, I've been doing this for about 15 years now. And so I know that, that the people who end up doing IVF have often or, or typically even been through an, an enormous amount of fertility failures, miscarriages, medication, treatment, stillbirth, um, sometimes even losses after birth. I've had people come to me who, whose entire family got wiped out in an automobile accident. Yeah, I mean, you know, the stories go on, and and I just learned that uh, that your institute um, uh, is connected with Carol Lockwood. That that you consult with her as well. Yes, we we consult with her also. Uh, we're always uh, looking for in lawyers that are interested in going into reproductive law. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's important for our clients to be able to have uh, some safeguards and. Uh, especially when we're looking at third-party reproduction, when we're using donor eggs, when we're using surrogacy. We really require um, lawyers like Carol Lockwood to be able to safeguard our, our clients from potential lawsuits and, and claims. Um, well, you know, Lockwood, we understand, sits on a task force that was convened uh, by the Hawaii Attorney General, and we understand that they're looking to update laws around uh, parentage uh, for modern times, because it's not just uh, male-female, you know, there are cases of male-male, female-female, so it, it really has, uh, I guess, uh, developed o over, the, over the decades. Parentage uh, based on genetic parentage, for instance, is, is currently established under Hawaii law um, under the Uniform Parentage Act. Uh, it's more commonly known probably as the paternity statute. Uh, it's the one that, uh, for instance, partners who were not married uh, but had a baby together would use, say, um, if the female partner um, or the partner who gave birth wanted to prove that her boyfriend was in fact the child's father and therefore she paid child support, 
or if in, in contrast if he believes that his girlfriend's baby is in fact his baby and he should have you know time sharing and access to the child and be able to exercise parental rights so that's that's the statute that we use for this our statutes do not adequately address or really even address at this point assisted reproductive technology and they're not explicit with respect to many of the so-called non-traditional uh, family structures that are now very common and, and arguably were common in the past but they're just left out of the statutes and so the task force was created by the legislature um, or was instructed the department of attorney general was instructed by the legislature to create a task force to study the uniform parenting yeah and we understand they've been working for about a year now and they'll have a report uh prior to the convening of uh, the 2025 a season. If you're just joining us, our guest in our studio today, Dr. Celia Dominguez. She's co-director of the Pacific In Vitro Fertilization Institute, uh, the very first IVF clinic in Hawaii, and Professor Miyoko uh, Pettit Toledo. Uh, she was uh, with the University of Hawaii Law School. And, you know, it, it's a, a tough road, you know, when you're dealing with fertility issues and uh, the decision to have children or not. Um, we uh, spoke with former state lawmaker Beth Fukumoto. She offers a perspective. She switched parties in office from Republican to Democrat, and she herself struggled with not being able to afford to freeze her eggs. And she wrote an opinion piece saying, it may be too late for her, but she wants to do what she can to help others. Is the question of whether or not um, we should be requiring insurance companies to provide a certain amount of insurance or whether or not we should have a state insurance program. You know, it's controversial. It, people don't like insurance mandates. They can raise the cost of insurance. People don't like state programs that pay for things that aren't going to impact them. And many people see this as a personal choice that people have made and therefore do not need to rely on state funding. And I get that. But as a state, every budget we, decision we make is a decision whether or not to value a certain policy idea. So what I wanted to do was just put on the table that IVF coverage is a decision that we could potentially take up, even if we provide it for people under a certain income. What I have noticed is that what happens is a lot of companies, if you're in a higher level company, um, they may provide that insurance as a choice. But what that ends up meaning is that people that are sort of middle income or lower income don't get to make that choice. Um, so there is some inequity there. And you know, I know people who have spent thousands of dollars out of pocket to, you know, try it, give us a stab. And you know, now we've got insurance that does cover a portion of it. But, but what are you seeing in your practice? Yeah, we're lucky here in Hawaii, actually. The unfortunate part is if you have Quest, or if you don't have um, uh, insurance from, from your job, and, or if you have a mainland insurance, they're not covering in vitro. They don't have to because the mandate for coverage has to do with Hawaii-based insurance companies. And uh, the coverage is for one in vitro per insurance company or per insurance group. So it's a little bit tricky. We have patients that will jump from one insurance to another or from a HMO to PPO to be covered. But they don't cover egg freezing. Egg freezing gets covered only by certain insurances. For example, if you work for Disney at Aulani, then you're covered. If you work for Target, mm -hmm. if you work for Facebook, if um, and those companies are really trying to bring in young females into their corporation. And so as a plus, they will go ahead and have coverage either uh, finite 
money amount, like $75,000 or $100,000, or actually, for example, five cycles of being able to freeze your own eggs. So it is out there. So for the listeners that are looking for jobs, uh, try to find one that has some coverage for young females for freezing your eggs. And, And my statement was young females. I think that that's important to recognize that success in what we do is really based out of your female age. So it's really heartbreaking when I will have a 44-year-old come to me and ask me to egg freeze um, because the reality is that the best egg freezing is when you're in your 20s. That's interesting. I don't know. Any thoughts about, you know, the insurance landscape and um, these rulings? I can't really speak to the insurance landscape, but um, what lawmaker Beth Fukumoto is bringing out in terms of inequities, it just brings to mind um, going back to this uh, recently filed case regarding the midwifery restriction law about access. Access, whether it's to IVF or access to maternal health care. Um, I, I believe most of the IVF clinics are based on Oahu and Honolulu. Um, the midwifery restriction law um Part of the lawsuit, one of the arguments is that it's reducing access to maternal care for pregnant people in rural areas, and that will disproportionately be some of our um, friends and neighbors on the neighbor islands across the state. Um, and and when we're talking about maternal health care, um, it's it's really important, right? Especially when we're looking at some of the maternal mator- mortality rates that are particularly high for Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities. And so when we're talking about inequities, it may not just be access to insurance, but just access to these opportunities to begin with. And just to be real clear, so um, Dr. Dominguez, so the the in vitro clinics, they are really all here on Oahu, right? The the clinics to be able to do the in vitro, there are physicians that go to other um, islands, but to have an in vitro center and to have a clinic and to be able to have um, areas where we put our embryos in safe harbor um, with, you know, lockdown (laughs) and with the capacity for us to, if we end up in a big storm and electricity goes out, to be able to have backup generators. Um, To run these centers is extremely expensive and to be able to to set them up. The equipment that we have is very, very expensive and very difficult. So to be able to do this on another island for a few clients is really cost prohibitive. Um, and, and, and so that makes it that they have to travel here. Um, the, the prior recommendations from insurance companies or the prior mandates, one of them was that uh, you could do in vitro if you had infertility for more than five years. And the sad part was here that we had a lot of clients from outer islands that really literally waited five years. They didn't like, and if, if you're 37 and you're waiting five years, you're waiting to 42. And again, success is really based on female age here. And you can easily age yourself out and then require donor egg, which is not covered by, again, the, the, the insurance mandate. Um, there's been some changes of all of us uh, infertility doctors that got together over the last three years in multiple meetings with HMSA to try to change uh, some of the 
requirements that a patient needed to have to be able to do in vitro. And now we can do in vitro after having three failed inseminations. So that's really changed the availability for patients. And now we're really trying to spread that news. And no, you don't have to wait five years. Okay. Uh, so you do have to hit certain requirements of the insurance company for them to pay for it. They don't pay for everybody. This is You, you have to have undergone a workup and we have to have certain um, again, uh, requirements that you've that we've checked to make sure that you're a good candidate. Right. So a successful. lot has changed. A lot has changed. Well, we only have a, a couple of minutes. Uh, final thoughts. Just to say, while I'm optimistic here in Hawaii, you know, with this election year coming up, I this this ruling out coming out of Alabama is not surprising, and I think it's just a, unfortunately the tip of the iceberg, and we're going to continue to see movements to restrict re- reproductive autonomy and freedom, um, and perhaps having continuing to have lawmakers intervening in spaces that are um, perhaps they shouldn't be and where they can't intimately be involved and that perhaps it's better to be consulting with a medical provider. Um, the caller who mentioned this is kind of sounding like the the handmaid mm-hmm. handmaid's tale. You know, that's a, a kind of view of, of various um, legal scholars in the reproductive <laughs> justice yeah, field. That's interesting. And we've got about a minute, Dr. Dominguez. Well, I think the, the uh, even in Alabama, because so many IVF Patients have been speaking up and have been going to the Alabama uh, State um, House and representative. They have yesterday voted 94 to to 6 with representatives and 32 to 0 for the senators to approve a um, a kind of an addition to that law that has to shield the providers from uh, legal uh, repercussions or from civil lawsuits against the... um, damage to the embryos. So I'm kind of happy that we, as uh, our our patients and doctors, going forward also and speaking up and representing ourselves. So even in Alabama, we're seeing that hopefully in the next two weeks, at least there's going to be a little bit of reversion of this, um, not not with respect to the embryo not being a life, um, but with respect to us not being liable uh, civilly. So... We have to speak up. I totally agree. Speak up, participate in democracy, be heard. And our our doctors are doing that in our state legislature. And at the law school, we actually have doctors now starting law school. All right. Okay. Well, (laughs) we'd like to thank our guests, uh, Miyoko Pettit-Toledo, a law professor at UH Manoa, and Dr. Cecilia Dominguez uh, of the Pacific In Vitro Fertilization Institute. That is it for our Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we turn our attention to downtown Honolulu with the sale of the former Walmart store to Avalon and local developer Christine Camp. What are your thoughts about the state of downtown? Call or talk back line and leave your comments. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, with help from Savannah Harriman-Pote and Maddie Bender. Backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.